1 John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was manifested or became visible, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The headline this morning would read, Satan Defeated. If I were to ask you what was the most important battle of World War II, what would you say? Depending on what kind of a history buff you are, there are some that you're going to recognize. Some of you may say the Battle of Iwo Jima because that has become a very popular thing as we think about the monument. It's been in the news again now because they're still trying to figure out who really all was in that classic picture. In fact, what was actually when they did it and then when they went back and reposed it and shot it. So people are questioning, you know, who all was actually in that? But some of you might remember Iwo Jima. Some of you might remember the Battle of Anzio. Some of you might know the name, the Battle of Britain. Maybe the Battle of Coral Sea. Battle of Midway. But historians say probably the number one most important battle of World War II, and World War II was probably the greatest, at that point, was the greatest conflict in, in history. It carried out on a global scale. It was the first modern warfare where airplanes were really being used tactically to take out positions of the enemy. World War I, they were kind of shooting at each other and mainly used for observation. But interestingly enough, with all the modern technology, the battle that probably most impacted World War II was not won by airplanes or smart bombs or bombs of any kind, really. It was the Battle of Stalingrad. Battle of Stalingrad was fought from street to street, house to house, literally room to room. The Red Army had been told, you are to hold these strong points. And so throughout the entire city, all of these strong points, office buildings, different houses, apartments, there were soldiers placed there and they were told this, do not retreat. Do not retreat. The Germans' artillery and air power virtually demolished the city, but they could not dislodge the defenders. The total number of casualties may have been as many as two million, including civilians in that one long protracted battle. The Virginia Daily Enterprise had this as their headline. Germany's dream of world conquest shattered. Germany thought they had it all worked out. They had learned from World War I and World War II they were going to become the dominant power and that was their dream and they thought they had everything in place, but they were defeated. Yet none of you this morning, when I asked what the most important battle was, said the Battle of Stalingrad. Of course, you didn't say anything when I, when I asked the question. So maybe you knew that, 
and you were just being polite and saying, maybe he doesn't know and I hate to embarrass him. But as you think about this, how easy is it to forget the battles that were fought so that we can have freedom? Today, we're even seeing history rewritten as people are saying things happened that didn't happen. Why? Because we have forgotten the battles that were won. You know, it's often the same with spiritual battles. It's easy to begin to forget the reasons why Christ died. Scripture tells us the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. From what did we need saving? From whom did we need saving? Last week we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and we learned something about ourselves. Look with me again. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. When we sin, we become lawbreakers. But the problem with us is we're intentional lawbreakers. It's not like we said, oh, I didn't know that. Even when we know it, we still choose to do it. We're intentional lawbreakers. And the scriptures address that. A person who breaks the law, literally, in that the law is the character of God. The law is a good thing. The law is, is designed to be a blessing to us. Now, it's our schoolmaster. We learn of our failings from it. But I think often we look at the law as just this negative thing that you can't ever keep, and it was just to show us we couldn't keep it. But the reality is God didn't give the law just to make you miserable. In fact, the reality is God gave the law to be a blessing. But the problem is we're sinners. So we read in verse 5, And ye know that he, Jesus Christ, was manifest. And last week we looked at that word manifest, meaning from 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we've studied, we've analyzed, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifest, revealed, demonstrated for us. Jesus Christ came, he took on human flesh, he became human for our sakes so that we could see something, so that we could have our sins forgiven. Last week we looked at the point of he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. You see, it had to take someone that was very unique. Jesus Christ is the only human that's ever lived that never sinned. I have sinned many, many times. Each of us have sinned many, many times. So why did Jesus come? Why was he manifest? Why did he come to this earth and become visible? Well, the first thing is that he might take away our sins. It was intentional. You see, I've resisted everything that was good. And I've resisted God's character. Everything in the Ten Commandments reflects who God is. I don't know if you've thought about that. 
He is the only God. Thou shalt have no other gods before him. He wants to be worshipped in a way that is in keeping with who he is. Therefore, thou shalt not make any graven images. He is holy. Therefore, we don't take his name in vain. He's been so kind to us. When we remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, what he's really telling us is, I want you to remember my character. I'm a good God. I'm not a slave driver. You don't have to work to provide for yourself. I provide for you. And every time we take a break, and we work hard, but then we take a break, it's reminding us, I trust God. He's a good God. He's a good authority. He gave us our parents. God does not hate. God is love. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, if you hate, you are a murderer. Thou shalt not kill. You see, in God's nature, in his character, he is love. We should not commit adultery. We need to be faithful. Yet the scriptures tell us that you don't have to commit the act when you just think it in your heart. You are an adulterer. Why? Because it's against God's nature. It's against God's character. When he tells us you should not steal, you see, God does not steal. He gives. God never bears false witness. God always tells the truth. God doesn't covet, wanting what is not his. You see, God's content. God has enough. And all of a sudden, I find as I look at my life, I am a lying, stealing, murdering, hating, adultering, coveting lawbreaker. And you came to hear me preach. Can you imagine that? Who would ever come to hear that kind of a person preach? He said, well, I didn't know. Otherwise, I wouldn't have come. You know, the problem is, is that all of us fall into that category. He, Jesus Christ, was manifest, became human, to take away our sins. But now I want you to see the second part. Notice the last part of verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that's what I want us to focus on in the next few minutes this morning. What are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy? That's something we ought to think about. I, I'm, I'm always afraid that we will read God's word and we'll go out and we never really give it a second thought. and We don't really understand what we're reading but it doesn't really bother us that we didn't understand it. We just go out and nothing has happened other than you've given me an hour of your time. What are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy? What I want you to notice is if Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, what do we know about the devil? He's not a joke. He's not a toy. 
He's not an excuse. He's a person. A person that has a goal. And his goal was to do something. And Jesus Christ came to totally undo what the devil, what Satan did. So what do we know about Satan? Jesus tells us, so that you would know, in John 8, chapter 44, he says, he's describing, he's talking to people, and he says, look, you're of your father, the devil, and his works you're going to do. He, the devil, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, and the truth abode not in him. Let's put that into normal language. He said, look, you act the way you do because you are children of who you are, children of. You know, we've talked about that. You know, our children have the way of picking up our speech patterns. They, they pick up our humor or lack thereof. They pick up everything about us as they spend time with us. And what do we know? Jesus said, look at your life and look at what the devil, what Satan is like. And what is he? He's a murderer and he's a deceiver. So what do we know? Satan is a liar. He does not deal in the currency of truth. Now, how important is truth? It's the basis of all communication. If there is not truth, you don't know where you stand. You know, sometimes we think we're being kind when we tell people what we think they want to hear, but the problem is we've not communicated at all because we haven't told them the truth. You know, the phrase that always makes me laugh is when people say, you know, there isn't even honor among thieves. People that steal expect their partners to be honest with them and to, to divide up what they stole fairly. Does, does that seem funny to you? That guy's a crook. He cheated me out of my part of what we stole. You see, at the very root of even thievery, there has to be honesty. If you're not honest, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're not going to really be part of it and be Dependable? I mean, what kind of crook are you? You see, at our very core, at our very nature, is God. And even when we do wrong, we still expect right. Because it's the foundation. Satan is a liar. How do... How would you ever know that Satan has told you the truth? I mean, the only thing you would know is that he's a deceiver, he's a liar. So if he tells you something, you would say, okay, well, every time he tells me something, I'll do the opposite. But you really don't know where he is because sometimes he skins his lie in truth so that you can't really see it. The one thing you know for certain is Satan's a liar. He's always going to lie. It always is a lie. Whenever he says... It's going to work out good this time. This is good for you. You just know this. It's not going to work out good for you. Because how did Jesus describe Satan? He's a liar. And he's a murderer. A destroyer. A murderer. Someone that brings death. You say, well, I'm alive. No, you, you are just in the process of completely dying. That's why life is the way it is. And that's why when Jesus says, I came that you could have life and you could have it more abundantly, what he's describing for us is, Jesus is saying, you, when you sinned, you, dead, you died. Um, 
The scriptures put it this way. Um, that the wages of sin, what you earn because of sin, is death. And the definition of death is not a cessation of life. Death is separation. When my parents died, I was separated from them. When we sinned, we had to be separated from a holy God. And the problem is God is good and everything God does is good. And Satan, who's the destroyer, the works he came to do was to separate us from our good God, our creator. He's a destroyer. He destroys relationships. You see, if there were, if there were no sin, there would be no drunkenness, no wives being beat, no children being hurt. There would be no quarreling. There would be no infidelity. There would be no, no reason for divorce. You see, those aren't Satan's greatest lies. Satan says, drink this, live it up. Do this. Real joy only comes when you violate these laws. The scriptures are so antiquated, and in fact, they really aren't the truth. But who's the one telling you those things? The liar. When you know the person's a liar, all of a sudden your antenna ought to go up immediately. So if he's telling me this is good, then I know one thing. It's not good. Because Satan's always going to be a liar. But you know what Satan's greatest lie is? It's not about chemicals or activities that you do. The greatest lie that Satan ever gave you is the lie about God. About God's attitude toward you. About communion with God. Do you know Satan said, God said, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he say that? Because God had given them all the information they needed. What did Satan say? God's holding out on you. As soon as you eat of that tree, you're going to find out that God hasn't told you the whole truth. So you need to make decisions for yourself. The reality was God put him in a perfect garden that bore fruit round year. They had everything they needed to eat. And do you know when they worked, the Garden of Eden was a hobby farm? You know what a hobby farm is? Hobby farm is something you do just because you really enjoy doing it, but not because you have to. I mean, stop and think about this. The whole world was a hobby farm. You were going to have all you needed to eat. There was no pressure. You didn't have to have another job to pay for your farming habit, you know? All of a sudden, now it was just the way it was. And that's what God gave them. And God said, Harold, look, I'll give you all of this. And Satan says, oh, no. Oh, no, God's not good. He lied about God. And you know that same lie is still going around today? That you don't, you really don't want to get to know God. Like, that's, that's bad. 
You don't want to spend your time getting to know God. That, that's bad. The reality is, he's the one you want to know. He's the one who knows how your marriage can be great. Now, the only problem with our marriage is me. You see, Cindy's still married a sinner. Now, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm still, I'm still a sinner. And I get selfish, and I get moody, and I... Don't make me say all the other things I do. But imagine what I would be like if it wasn't for God's grace. But not only did Satan lie about God, Satan lied about God's will. You see, laws are for our good and benefit. We dislike a holy life because we believe the lie of sin. If you didn't believe the lie, you would be embracing everything that God said. You know, you know there's, there's no marginal laws that God gave us. There's, no, there's nothing that God did. We'd go, oh, that one's kind of iffy, but the rest of them are pretty good. If that were the case, then God wouldn't be good, would he? You see, the reality is the way of the transgressor, the person that trespasses God's law, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's always hard. Every time I violate God's law, it's hard. It doesn't go good. It's just always hard. Let me think if I can think of a time that when, when I did wrong that it went well. Can't think of one. You see, we reap what we sow. Sometime we'll, we'll do a study on that. It's a fascinating study. Of, you know, when you reap, when you sow something, you always reap what you've sown, like the same kind of thing. And you look at the characters through the scriptures, and you know what you find? What they sowed, they reaped. Oh, that's scary. I've been deceitful. People are going to be deceitful with me. I'm going to reap that. I've lied. People lie to me. I've hated people. People hate me. All of a sudden, you begin realizing, wait, wait, wait. Really? I mean, when it says you reap what you sow, you really do reap what you sow? Absolutely you reap what you sow. And I'll, I'll give you the real, the real short answer to that as we have driven way off the path and we're going to come back to our text, and that is this. How do you stop reaping what you've sown? Well, you can pray and ask God to give you a horrible crop that year and you start sowing what you want to reap. You see, there's always hope. Today, you can stop and you start planting the good stuff and what's going to come up? The good stuff. You see, the Bible's not this complex, really difficult thing. There's lots of really exciting, cool doctrines, some that you really have to really wrestle with. But when you find the truth in what it's saying, there's joy. You see, we have become enslaved and we've lost fellowship with a holy God. That was the work that Satan wanted to do. Now, knowing that, why did Jesus come? You know the answer to that. We've already read it. To destroy the works of Satan. How did Jesus do that? It specifically says... 
he was manifest. Jesus came in human flesh. The big, the big word's the incarnation. In flesh, that's all it means, incarnate. So that he might destroy the works of Satan. What did Jesus' coming destroy? A lie that God doesn't love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What did Jesus coming do? First, it tells you Satan lied about God. He does love you. He does care about you. He is very interested in you, that he would send his son to die for you. And Satan says, oh, how do you really know that he loves you? He came. He demonstrated his love for us. You see, Christ coming to this earth is a denial of one of Satan's great lies that God is not interested in you. Why did Jesus spend the years he did here on earth? Well, the first 30 were to demonstrate he was the spotless lamb of God. His neighbors were watching when all the other kids stole his bike and, you know, took his hostess cupcakes at lunch and did all the different things to him. And how did he respond? He never sinned. He'd get together and there'd be a group of guys and they'd be talking about things they shouldn't talk about and Jesus never sinned. They watched him as a baby. Can you imagine that? No sleepless nights with Jesus. As a child. I can almost break out in a cold sweat when I think of some of the things I did as a child. I am not telling you those things. But I'm ashamed. More like the, the corporate world sins. You know, not the blatant things. It was the undertow kind of things. The things that you, you fly under the radar and you get by with. As a teenager, as a teenager, Jesus never sinned. As a young adult, Jesus never sinned. As a man that was working every day in a carpenter shop... And when things didn't go the way we would want things to go, Jesus never said anything he shouldn't say. 30 years. Any questions? Not one failure. Well, that was so that we could know he was sinless. He was the Lamb of God. He was capable of taking away our sins because he had never sinned. But the second thing is the next three years, what he did, you think about how he lived. Was it just a narrow, holy life and really awful? Would Jesus' life be one of those you go, I do not want one like that? He never sowed anything that was wrong. Jesus never got drunk. Jesus was never involved with the neighborhood girl. And you would look at his life and you would go, oh, wish I could be like him. I don't have anything in my life. You know, he, he didn't have anything in his life that he had to regret. Jesus never regretted. He didn't abuse his body. Look at his teaching. 
He exposed the true depth of sin. You know, in, Ma in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Oh, no, don't just think that it's just this action, the big one. That's the bad one. Jesus said, Oh, no, you need to understand Satan's lie starts all the way back here. When you just hate a person in your heart, you've already lost that battle. When you look at a person, you've lost that battle. He starts going through. Why did he tell him that? Was it again to go bad, 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 bad? No, it was, you need to understand, you've believed a lie. And sin brings death. We often want to blame God and say, God, why are you doing that? Wait, back up the cameras here. Look at the replay. It's sin that brings death. It's sin that brings pain into your life. It's all these things that are hurting you, and God is good. What was the purpose of his life? To destroy the works of the devil. You know, much of what Jesus did here on earth, he was undoing the bad things Satan did. You ever think about that? He was always undoing all the things that Satan had done wrong, which was a wonderful picture of what he would ultimately do for us. You've got a lady who for 18 years was all crippled up. She had all kind of physical problems, and what was the problem that she had? She was controlled by Satan. What did Jesus do? He released her. What was he doing? He was demonstrating he undoes what Satan does. He was undoing the condemnation of the lie. He was setting us right before God. Look at the cross. What was the cross? He was taking away our guilt before God because he paid the punishment. You see... Sin has to be paid, and literally sin is so serious, it can only be paid for by a life. Therefore, it says, without the shedding of blood, which is what life, how our life is, he says, there's no forgiveness of sins. The problem is, is that my blood is so tainted by sin that I couldn't pay for my own debt. Jesus, when he died, after those 30 years, sinless, Jesus died to take your place. God had Jesus become sin for us. He took my place over here so that we, me over here, sinner, might become the righteousness of God in him. We just exchanged places. Kind of like the prince and the pauper. You see, you look at his resurrection. Why did he rise? That was the final proof that God was pleased with his work. It assures us that we are secure in our salvation, eternal security, because it was based on what Jesus did, not on us. That's the reason why we don't have to go through all these things and hope that we've done enough good. You see, Paul says Christ defeated the last enemy when he was resurrected. Literally, he has conquered every single enemy. And now... He rescues one by one. It's a choice that we get to make. Look at the victories. He's already destroyed Satan's work. Satan was trying to keep us from having fellowship with God. Now we don't have that. Now we have fellowship with God again. 
chapter 1. You see, Satan wants to separate us from a life that's joyful. Satan's whole goal is for you to be miserable your entire life. And Jesus came so that you could have life. And we now look forward to what the scripture calls the blessed hope. This exciting thing that we look forward to that we know is a guarantee and that is Jesus is coming back. And Satan will be forever separated from us. And in a place where he can never have contact with us again. We always feel cheated when someone who has done horrible things gets out of jail early. Why? Because we don't want them back in society again. Why do we have that kind of a feeling in us? Because we were made in God's image. And you're seeing things about God in your responses. And the reality is God says, I never made a place called hell for you. I made a place called hell for Satan and his angels so they could never harm you again. But God is holy. Which means God can't allow sin around us. He loves you, but your sin has to be dealt with. And that's the reason why Jesus came and died. And that's the reason why salvation is so simple. Jesus Christ took your place. He did all the heavy lifting. All you have to do now is accept what he's done. You see, the greatest battle that was ever fought was not against Satan's pawns. It's not the things that go on every day. The greatest battle that was ever fought was against Satan himself. Why did Jesus come? To take away our sins and to undo the works of the devil. How does that impact us? Well, God has offered to you forgiveness of sin and restoration to life, eternal life. What you have currently is a dying death. You're just waiting for the obvious conclusion. I've told you all this today not to make you feel bad. I told you this today so that you can have life. I don't look down on you. I'm the worst. But God saved me. And God can save you. But it's your choice. He doesn't force you. If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, it's literally this simple. Dear God, I accept that you love me and that because of my sin, Jesus came and he died for me so that my sins could be forgiven. I accept that. Thank you. You can do that today. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment, and while you're thinking about that, let me just talk to the people that have already received this gift. In verses 6, in verses 7, in the first part of verse 8, in verse 9, 
and in verse 10, all of those verses at first look like it's teaching sinless perfection. Either when you read, let no man deceive you, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, he that committeth sin is of the devil, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, all of a sudden we begin thinking, if this means it's talking about an act of sin, then I'm in serious trouble, I'm not saved. If this is really teaching sinless perfection, I'm not there. Here we have not a problem with God's word, but here we have something that has been transmitted to us through a translation. Because literally what this is telling us is he's saying, and it goes from being a crushing defeat and a finger shake, it goes to being an encouraging statement. Because what he says is, um, you can tell a believer, whosoever abideth in him does not live the lifestyle of sinning. The word there literally is an active present tense. Sorry to throw English at you, but we've gotta, you've got to actually look at it. And if you go back and you look at what God gave us, he says, you can tell believers don't actively, continually, every day continue in the same sins. Oh, we sin, but we're constantly being reminded of, oh, that's, that's wrong. That's not what God is like. And we, when we recognize that, we confess that. And he's faithful and just not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us, to change us. Every one of these passages in 6, 7, 8a, 9, and in 10, every one of these are the same thing. They're present, active, continuing things. That's the reason why he says it the way he does. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, not he that is righteous doeth righteousness. He flipped it for us so that we would recognize as a believer, your life radically changes. And he wants you to understand, don't believe the lie that Satan has that says you can never change. You see the good news? You can change because you are in Christ. Did you see that we so often want to turn it around and do this to everybody? And the reality is, no, there's hope. <laughs> there's hope. I don't have to stay the way that I am. I want to encourage you to begin looking at what God has said and believe the truth. Satan doesn't bring happiness. And the more we look at things around us and then look at God's word, which is a lamp and a light, it allows us not to run into things. Oh, man. So I'm walking, walking through the bedroom, and we have this standing antique-looking fan in our room, which weighs a lot. You can't tip it over very easily. All the lights were out, and we had no nightlights on, and Cindy was still sleeping. And I was going to tiptoe through the room to get into another, into, into the bathroom. And all of a sudden, in the quietness, you hear this, wham! I didn't see that coming. And you know the reason why I didn't see it coming? There was no light. God doesn't make us read his word. It just really makes sense to turn on the lights. I hope today as you've heard this, you see the newspaper? Satan's defeated. The battle's been won. 
oh, there's a lot of stuff that's working out right now, but the reality is it's just a matter of getting all the after war stuff taken care of. And you can be on the right side. <laughs>